Hello and welcome. I am Joel McReynolds, and you are listening to my preaching podcast. I have the opportunity to share from God's Word and want to share God's message not only with the congregation of the churches I preach in, but also with you. You can find out more information about me on my website, joelmcreynolds.com, where you can also check out my blog. For now, I hope God speaks to you through today's message. Concerned about spies. They were a constant problem, except when the armies were on the move. And Washington knew he couldn't stop all of them, so he began to feed false information as his next best defense against them. With that in mind, on December the 12th of 1776, he told Je- Colonel John. Cadwallader of the Philadelphia Associators of the Pennsylvania Militia. I'm trying to say that really fast. That's very difficult. He told him this. Keep a good lookout for spies. Endeavor to magnify your numbers as much as possible. This was a ploy he would use over and over again in creating false troop information. Which, if you're in the military, you know that's a common strategy. By inflating the size and giving the wrong location of forces to his spies, or to those spies that were in his camp, they would discover those, take that false information back to enemy headquarters, and they'd have to sift through what is true and what is false information. And all of this misinformation came in handy a few weeks later. Some spies had passed on information about Washington's plans to cross the Delaware River. And about the attack that would take place on the Hessian troops that were stationed by the British at Trenton. And despite them receiving this accurate information, there was so much false information that a series of false alarms and and then the growing storm that was coming about lulled the Hessian defenders into believing that no attack would happen. But as we know, on Christmas Day... Washington led his nearly naked army through the freezing rain, the freezing wind, and the hail to cross the Delaware River, and then to march nine miles as they left bloody footprints in the snow. And at dawn the next morning, the Americans attacked the Hessians, taking them by surprise, and capturing out of a thousand Hessian soldiers, they captured approximately 900 of them in a complete rout. And as we know, that was the turning point of the American Revolution. Well, thousands of years before Washington, Joshua, the new leader of the Israelites that we looked at last week, was preparing for battle. Last week, we looked into the call that God gave to Joshua as he prepared to lead the Israelites into the land of Canaan. The people would be led by God through the person of Joshua to capture the cities of Canaan. And the first city that they would come to that they needed to conquer was Jericho. Now Jericho is the world's most ancient city. Most historians agree with that. It was heavily heavily fortified and it guarded the entrance as you came into Canaan from the east. 
So not knowing what lie ahead, Joshua did what any good general would do and sent spies into that city to gather information on it. Now, before we jump into our story in Joshua chapter 2, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Would you bow with me? Father, we thank you for this morning, the opportunity that we have to come together as your family, as children that belong to you. We've been adopted into your family. We are citizens of your kingdom if we have believed and trusted in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I thank you that we can gather freely and to hear your word proclaimed publicly. And Lord, we also mourn together as a church family for the one family. Lord, we lift them up to you. Pray that your spirit of peace would be upon them during this time as, as they're dealing with this loss. Lord, I pray this morning, most importantly, that your name would be lifted. Your name would be glorified. The name of Jesus would be proclaimed this morning. And your spirit would stir our hearts to respond to you. So, Lord, as we study your word this morning, make it come alive for us. Open our hearts, open our minds, pierce our souls with it. We pray this in the holy and precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Joshua chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Let's read together. We'll read through verse 7 for now. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men as spies secretly from Shittim, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came into the house of a harlot, whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. It was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men from the sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them, and she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. It came about when it was time to shut the gate at dark that the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But, verse 6, but she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them in the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued them on the road to Jordan to the fords. And as soon as those who were pursuing them had gone out, they shut the gate. That is the city gate. So first we see a covert assignment. Joshua sent two spies into Jericho. Now remember, Israel had come to the land of Canaan before. And at that time, Moses had spent had sent some spies into the land. Do you remember how many spies he sent into the land? Twelve. Twelve. He sent twelve spies into the land. How many came back with a positive report that said, let's go take the land? Two. Two out of twelve. Not great odds. So the people of Israel had chosen not to enter into the land. And now we're back to Joshua. But do you remember who those two spies were? What were their names? Caleb and Joshua. So this time, instead of sending 12 spies, Joshua secretly, it says, he secretly sent two spies. The phrasing here likely means that he did not let the rest of Israel know what he was doing, like Moses did. Let's not leave this up to the people. We saw what happened 
when that happened. Let's be strategic in what we're doing. So Joshua sent out these spies. It's not a lack of faith. Joshua doesn't know what's coming that we know about in Joshua chapter 6. But what he was demonstrating was a true act of faith. Last week we saw God tell Joshua, you are going to conquer this land. Go out and do it. I will be with you and you will succeed. And Joshua here is immediately acting upon God's promises that we saw last week. So he used his common sense, he used his military leadership experience and a healthy dose of caution to demonstrate his faith in God's word by sending out these two spies. Well, these spies came to Rahab's house. Rahab here is described as a harlot or a prostitute. And as, as Brother Paul so nicely put it this morning, there's not much worse that you can be called than a harlot. But that's what she is. She is described as the owner of a house, though. So she was also likely not just a harlot or a prostitute, but the manager of a brothel, which would make sense in context. In the ancient Near East, many travel, travelers would go from town to town, and they would stay at the local brothel. So her house, we know, is located on the city wall, and scholars believe that it was near the city gate, which would make it convenient for travelers, and it would also allow her to know what's going on in the community. She'd be quite well informed. Well, the king of Jericho was aware of the multitude of people from Israel that are waiting at the Jordan River to come into the land of Canaan. And so they're on the watch. Now, it doesn't specifically say this here, but it does a few chapters later. They were waiting to enter the land, and the, the king of Jericho knew this. And so when people came in that seemed to be Israelites, it was reported to the king, and he sent word to Rahab the harlot. And while I find it interesting, this, this section could have some narrative tension. It could be that you know they're about to be discovered, and, and they're hiding and waiting to see what's going on. And, but the author doesn't really do that for us. Instead, that's not the focus. What we see is instead of these men thinking, oh no, there's this tension of, is, is my goose cooked? Pretty quickly, we find out Rahab sends the king's men on a wild goose chase with a believable word of misinformation. They went out that way. I'm not sure who they were. It seems... Seems logical. But what we find is that God already had an agent on the inside of the city of Jericho. And she hid the men in the drying flax that was up on her roof and sent the king's men in hot pursuit going towards the Jordan. Where they know they would be going logically back to Joshua to give him a report. So as soon as the pursuers left the city... The gate to the city was closed, shut for the night. No entrance, no exit, and the spies of Israel still inside. But the question is, why was Rahab, this pagan harlot, this seemingly well-connected and fairly wealthy woman in an ancient Near Eastern context, why was she helping these Israelite spies. Well, let's continue reading verse 8. We'll read through verse 13. 
Now before they lay down, she came to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now, therefore, please swear to me by the Lord, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you also will deal kindly with my father's household and give me a pledge of truth and spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters with all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. So what do we see here? The New Testament commends Rahab for her faith. With it seems to place an emphasis in the New Testament on her actions towards these spies. In the, the Hall of Faith that we read about in Hebrews 11, it says, By faith Rahab the harlot did not perish among those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. James chapter 2 says, In the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. But her faith was not merely an external action. Yes, there is external action as evidence of her faith. But we find in this passage her overt confession. It was not merely external action. It was a fundamental change in her religious beliefs. Back in Exodus chapter 34, in verse 10, God said, Behold, I'm going to make a covenant before all your people. I will perform miracles which have not been produced in all the earth, nor among any of the nations. And all the people among whom you live will see the working of the Lord. For it is a fearful thing that I'm going to perform with you. So Rahab, in her words to these spies, she says that she and the citizens of the land of Canaan had heard stories about Yahweh, about Israel's God, and what he had done for them. They had, they had heard about what God did to that mighty army of the mighty nation of Egypt when Israel had crossed the Red Sea 40 years before. More recently, she had heard about the resounding defeat that took place just across the, the Jordan River when they came and defeated Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan. These events had made quite the impression, not only upon her, but upon all the people. She tells the spies that all of the people, everybody, has heard about Israel and Israel's God. The king of Jericho is afraid of Israel, and so are many of the people. But this prostitute, pagan prostitute had come to a personal conviction, and we read about it there in verse 11. This statement she makes in verse 11 is, is a remarkable statement that comes from the mouth of a foreigner. She understands that her own land 
is given to Israel. And she confesses, the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. This pagan prostitute that was raised worshiping the many Canaanite gods recognized that God the Almighty had power where the Canaanite gods were powerless. Her religious traditions would assert that the realms of the heavens and the earth, they belong to Baal. They belong to Asherah. They belong to the, the, the multitude of Canaanite gods. But here she confesses, Yahweh, the Lord, He is the one true God. And although she had not been there to hear it, she understood exactly what Moses had reminded the people in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, where he says, Listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. She claimed Yahweh, she claimed Israel's God was the one and only God. Not Baal, not Asherah, not Marduk, not Ishtar, Yahweh. And her confession echoes the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. And Deuteronomy chapter 4 says, Know therefore today and take it into your heart that the Lord, He is God in heaven above and on earth below. There is no other. So you see, her confession matches exactly with what's already in the law. Rahab's not just trying to save her bacon here. She's not just seeing there's fire coming, that God is going to bring his wrath. She acknowledged God as being the one and only one worthy of worship and of her allegiance. Now this is quite amazing when you think about it in context of the Israelites. This woman, Rahab, she didn't taste the manna. She never saw the glory cloud. And she had never even read the law, but she knew, based on the reputation of the people and what God had done, she knew the power of the Lord. And now having spared the lives of the spies by hiding them, Rahab requests, will you please return the favor? She had already surrendered everything by saving these spies. She had already committed herself and her city to destruction. But she hoped beyond hope that by saving these spies, they would spare her and her family from the coming devastation. Now there's a bit of a problem here that's quite easy to overlook. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but she's asking for an agreement. She's asking for a covenant with these spies that God had prohibited the Israelites from entering into agreements or making promises with the Canaanites. And we see the disaster that comes from them making such a treaty with the Gibeonites later in this book. We'll look at that in several weeks from now. But because of that prohibition, some commentators, some scholars have criticized this whole story because of God's command not to enter into an agreement with a Canaanite. But I think they overlook an essential difference with this. And that's what we find in verse 11 that we just looked at. Rahab's confession of faith in Israel's God. By making such a confession, Rahab essentially makes herself an Israelite. She cast her lot with God, with Yahweh, not with the Canaanite idol. 
So the spies are not guilty of breaking God's law because she was, in effect, based upon her confession, no longer a Canaanite, but rather this shows God's inclusion of all people who would confess him as the sovereign Lord. So by her confession, Rahab is transformed not only from Canaanite into Israelite, but she's transformed from being a harlot into being holy. Let's continue reading in verse 14. So the men said to her, Our life for yours, if you do not tell this business of ours. And it shall come about when the Lord gives us the land that we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she led them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on the city wall, as we said earlier, so that she was living on the wall. She said to them, Go to the hill country, so that the pursuers will not happen upon you, and hide yourselves there for three days until the pursuers return. Then afterward you may go on your way. The men said to her, We shall be free from this oath to you which you have made us swear, unless when we come into the land you tie this cord of scarlet thread in the window through which you let us down, and gather to yourself into the house of your father and your mother and your brothers and all your father's household. It shall come out, come about that anyone who goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be free. But anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our hand, our head, if any hand is laid on him. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be free from this oath which you have made us swear. She said, according to your words, so be it. So she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. Now there's a, the spies agreed to her request, but this is more than just a simple agreement. In fact, it's more than just a simple covenant. What does it require to have a covenant? You have to have terms for the agreement, and you have to have a sign of the covenant. And there's also this significant Hebrew word that's loaded with meaning all throughout the Old Testament that's used a few times in this passage. And that word is hesed. And this Hebrew word generally refers to God's steadfast and loyal love. In her request, Rahab used that word hesed in verse 12. Now the spies return the word to, the, to her. We will take this Kesed covenant with you if you do the following. You do not betray us. You must help us escape. You must keep our secret. And you must have the sign of the covenant hanging in your window. A red cord. Scarlet cord. Now, the instructions that they give about... If you must be, if you want to be saved, everybody must be in the house. Does all this sound familiar to you? If you, if you're not thinking it already, when you get to this, you should think about, think backwards. What was the tenth plague of Egypt? God sent the angel of death through the land of Egypt, and He told the people of Israel to be delivered. You must gather your family into your house. You must slaughter an unblemished lamb. And you must take the blood of that lamb and put it on the lentils and on the doorpost of your house. So that the judgment will pass over you. 
So this covenant between the spies and Rahab looks back to what God has already done for the people of Israel. And it strengthens that connection between her confession and her actions. Not that only does she save the spies, but she follows their directions. She adheres to the, the covenant they make with her. And so we see the scarlet cord. It's a bit of an antitype because it's harkening back to something before. But I think it's also a biblical type, meaning it's looking forward to something to come. This scarlet cord, this sign of the covenant, it saves this undeserving woman, a woman who was living in sin, a woman who was a pagan prostitute, a harlot, who responded to the mercy and grace of God. And just like her, salvation comes to us, undeserving people, sinners, broken and rebellious against God. But through God's mercy and his grace, through the scarlet blood of Jesus on the cross, we can be saved. And I hope you are. Well, she puts the scarlet thread in the window, and she lets the spies down through her window, which is on the city wall, and directed them, instead of going back to Joshua on the other side of Jordan, go the opposite way, go into the hill country, stay there for three days. Stay there for three days. We'll come back to that. And then go back to Joshua. Let your pursuers give up and then go back to Joshua. So let's look at the next few verses, 22. They departed and came to the hill country and remained there for three days until the pursuers returned. Now the pursuers had sought them along the road but had not found them. Then the two men returned and came down from the hill country crossed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they related to him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, Surely the Lord has given all the land into our hands. Moreover, all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before us. So we see quickly a confident report. This chapter wraps up rather quickly. The spies left. They did exactly what Rahab said. Instead of going directly back to Joshua... They go up into the hill country, the opposite direction, where they wait for three days. Now, what's the significance of three days? Well, there's a lot of biblical meaning for three days as we look at that with New Testament eyes. But remember last week we saw Joshua command the people, prepare, in three days we are going to cross the Jordan River. And then immediately he sends out spies and they come back. When? Three days later. Now they're ready to cross the river. So when the spies come to Joshua, the report is quite different from the report the twelve gave to Moses. In fact, it doesn't really give us many details about the city. It doesn't really tell us much about the land. That's what Joshua sent them to do. But what it does speak about is their confidence in God's word and in his plan. Their adventure gave them the confidence that God's promise is true. The details, what the land looks like, what the city looks like, doesn't really matter. Because God is for us. God said it, and it's going to happen. So this episode with Rahab and the report that she gave of the people confirmed what God had already told them. That he would give them the land of promise. Now we're going to jump briefly forward in the story. Most of you are probably already familiar with Joshua chapter 6. We'll look at, <clears throat> look at that in greater detail in a few weeks. But for now, all you need to know is this. The walls of Jericho come tumbling down. 
except for one location, Rahab's house. She and those who were with her in the house were the only survivors. And if you flip forward into Joshua chapter 6, verse 22. Joshua chapter 6, verse 22. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, Go into the harlot's house and bring the woman and all she has out of there as you have sworn to her. So the young men who were spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brothers and all she had. And they also brought out all her relatives and placed them outside the camp of Israel. Why did they place them outside the camp? They weren't yet purified. But notice what happens in a minute. They burned the city with fire and all that was in it. Only the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron they put in the treasury of the house of the Lord. However, verse 25, Rahab the harlot and her father's household and all she had, Joshua spared. And she has lived in the midst of Israel to this day. Where she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. So they brought them, put them outside the camp because they weren't purified. But here we see in verse 25, she has been in the midst of Israel. In uh, 1907, some German archaeologists began excavating the site of the city of Jericho. Where they find that there was a section of a wall that had not collapsed. A few years went by in the 1950s, Kathleen Kenyon goes back and re-excavated the site with more modern methods, modern being 1950s methods. She wrote in her report, the destruction was complete, walls and floors were blackened or reddened by fire, every room was filled with fallen bricks, timbers, and household utensils. In most rooms, the fallen debris was heavily burnt, but archaeologists found along the northern wall a standing section about eight foot tall, and a house built against the wall that was found to be intact. Of course, that's an amazing find. And it gives evidence to our biblical account. But what's even more amazing than that is if we look forward into the New Testament. The genealogy of Jesus that we find in Matthew chapter 1, we find God brought Rahab into the family of Israel, gave her a Jewish husband named Salmon. They had a son. His name was Boaz. Boaz married Ruth, another foreign Canaanite woman, who was brought into Israel by, based on her confession. And then from Rahab's lineage comes ultimately King David, and then even more so our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So God transformed this heathen harlot into a messianic matrix. And a similar transformation is available for us all. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning verse 11, Don't forget that you Gentiles, that's all of us, used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews who were proud of their circumcision even though it only affected their bodies and not their hearts. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from the citizenship among the people of Israel, and you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. But God works in mighty ways to give us his grace through his son Jesus Christ on the cross. 
We see that Rahab was not only delivered from death, but she was brought into the community of Israel by her confession. She was welcomed, she was fully integrated into the family, and she was transformed from being a harlot to being holy. Fellow Christian, you are not only saved from your sin and from death when you confess Jesus Christ as the Lord, but you are saved into a community of faith. And just as you were welcomed into Christ's church, his family, you ought to also welcome any other sinner, no matter their sin, when they repent of their sin and turn to Jesus. So are you willing to receive sinners in this spiritual hospital? Or are you going to turn them away because they might make you feel uncomfortable? Will you welcome the heart? When they confess their belief, they become your brother or sister in Christ and should be welcomed regardless of their background into our community of faith. But if you're here today and you are without Christ, the Bible says that you are dead in your trespasses and sins. You are without God. You are without hope. But just like Rahab, if you confess Yahweh is God alone and Jesus is his son and the only Savior who brings reconciliation between us and him, you can be saved not only from destruction, but you can be transformed just like Rahab from a sinner to being saved. You can become part of the family of God today. Listen to what Paul, the apostle, finishes in Ephesians chapter 2. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandment contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers, no longer aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, the church, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Would you please stand with me as we enter into a time of response? Thank you for listening to my podcast. Please subscribe to catch the latest episodes and find me on YouTube. Until next time, go out and pierce the darkness with the light of his word.